Hello, Marvelites. Welcome to This Week in Marvel, episode number 365. I'm Ryan, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Jamie, a.k.a. Agent Cauldron of Angst. Ooh. Yeah. All right. 365. It's like a full year. You can listen to Ooh. one episode every day and then listen to more because we actually have many more. We're going to keep yeah, we're gonna keep going next week, but yeah. we're throwing down the gauntlet. To whom? Anyone who wants to try the 365-day challenge. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and check back with us in a year. <laughs> yeah. I know so many of you listeners start with number one. You're very brave. Uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about this week. We have so much to talk about, and it is a big week for Marvel games. That's leading our top news. Big week because, one, Marvel Battle Lines has launched. The card battle game is out now on Android and iOS, and I am digging it. First day of launch, uh, I got super busy, so I didn't get to put in as much time as I wanted, but first day, I'm level 12. Deal with that, suckers. I have a card collection of, oh man, how many people are in my card stack? I have 33 cards, which is good-ish, I guess. I don't know. I got a Cottonmouth. I've got Daredevil. Diamondback, who I actually rather like in this game. He's pretty good. Dr. Octopus. Dr. Strange, who is dope. He puts up shields over everybody. And he's like, I'm going to protect my little babies. And it's good. There's like 203 cards at launch, which is a huge deal because this is a card battle game. You're trying to collect everything and you're trying to put together your own deck and like find what works for you. So you get to have 12 cards in your deck. You can build up to five different decks to use for different scenarios. But you go through, and there's so many different modes. There's the campaign mode with a really great story by writer Alex Irvine, who's a buddy. He does great stuff. There's an arena where you can, you know, battle people. There's special ops. There's challenges. There's this trial simulation stuff, which is really freaking hard. So you can you know, message people, find friends. I am Agent M, no spaces. I don't know if that is easy to find me on there, but let's do it. Let's be friends on Marvel Battlelines. Lots of stuff. I'm sure we're going to be talking about this much more as new updates and things come, and I'm just going to keep bugging them until they release a MODOK card. And on top of that, we have big updates for Marvel's Spider-Man, which is available exclusively on PlayStation 4. New Game Plus dropped after we recorded last week's episode, and that comes with the ability to replay the game with all of your gear and upgrades and take on the new Ultimate Difficulty, grab some new trophies, uh, which I will say, I started the Ultimate Difficulty with my level 50 Spider-Man, and it's terrific. I need all those trophies because I had a Platinum, and now I don't. So I need all of them trophies, but in addition to all that stuff, we've got updates to photo mode with new stickers, frames, and much more. And now this week, we have the very first DLC from Marvel Spider-Man The City That Never Sleeps with Marvel Spider-Man The Heist. It's the time of the year where I just need so much more time for games. I like to take a gamecation Ooh. in the fall where I just stay home and play video games and hang out with my cats. But it is, it is super terrific. I uh, hope everyone who has it is enjoying this new DLC. Much more to come on that in the coming weeks and months, I'm sure. But now, on to things we're hyped about this week, comma, including news! This November, learn the fate of Los Angeles in West Coast Avengers number 4, featuring a new variant cover by artist David Nakayama to celebrate the team's superhero debut on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Editor Alana Smith says, We wanted the new West Coast Avengers to be able to debut to the rest of the Marvel Universe in a big, bombastic way. And what's a better place for a team that's courting the L.A. limelight to debut than Jimmy Kimmel Live? 
or at least the Marvel Universe equivalent. And uh, she goes on to continue saying, this is actually Hawkeye's second time in the hot seat of a famous Marvel talk show. He went on Late Night with David Letterman way back in Avengers number 239, an appearance that we've actually paid homage to with our Jimmy Kimmel variant cover. Don't miss this action in West Coast Avengers number four on sale November 21st. Wherever you get your comics, it's going to be Awesome. And it's been a few years since we've had hip-hop variant covers, and now Marvel and Universal Music Enterprises have teamed up to collaborate on an exclusive album series that will feature variant covers for select collector's editions of some of the record label's most legendary hip-hop releases. Starting December 7th with 50 Cent's Get Rich or Die Tryin', these releases will have multiple editions, colored vinyl, a version with a copy of the comic that had the original hip-hop variant, and super limited runs. They were like... 3,000 copies for one version, 5,000 for another, which is very low, whether you're talking about records or comics. It's awesome. Uh, You can get the full details, see the art, and get tons more info on Marvel.com. And, of course, the Halloween is next week. We're rolling out tons of content, including a bonus episode of This Week in Marvel with Immortal Hulk writer Al Ewing, a special edition of Marvel's Pull List with some classic and modern horror books, and so much more. Right, Jimmy? Oh, absolutely. There's tons and tons of Halloween stuff on Marvel.com, including our Marvel Spook Lights, which puts the spotlight on certain Halloween-themed or Supernatural-themed book that you may have forgotten about or may just want to read about more. That's by one of our writers, T.J. Deitch. Awesome stuff. It's definitely getting me reading some horror, creepy stuff, and they're so much fun to edit. But also, I have to say, we have an article this week about one of the best Marvel Halloween costumes ever known to man, and that is Hulk as not just a clown, but a robot clown. It is Hulk as Mechano. Yeah, it's Avengers number one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's... I'm not a big fan of clowns, which is weird because I love the movie Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Who doesn't? I don't imagine a lot of people know that movie. Uh, what kind of life are they leading? I don't know. Those poor people. But yeah, Hulk <laughs> as Meccano is real strange. It's glorious. In all of its hulky, clowny, robotic glory, it is beautiful. Yeah. I dug up an episode of Marvel Superheroes What The uh, <gasps> called Thrillerer. Which uh, I remember doing a bunch of years ago with the what the team. What's really cool about it is that we actually got Stan Lee to do actual voiceover for the video, and it's a parody of Thriller. It's called Thrillerer, and it features Gambit and Rogue. But it's it's so good. Oh. I love what the oh. Dude, when we showed the clip at New York Comic Con with Jesse Falcon, the Jesse Falcon on our very own twin panel, it was honestly, that was my favorite, the best Comic Con I've ever had. And it had a lot to do with that clip. <laughs> it was so funny. It was so hilariously perfect. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. Very good um, stuff. Yeah, so that's uh, a lot of horror stuff. You can check all that out. Jamie, you'll throw us some links in the news story. Oh, and sure will. Show notes. That's about covers it for the stuff we're hyped about. But the top books from this week's episode of Marvel's Pull List include Infinity Wars, Soldier Supreme, number two, Sentry, number five, Spider-Gwen, Ghost Spider, number one, uh, which writer Shauna McGuire sent me a picture of one of her cats wearing a Spider-Gwen costume with a hoodie pulled up and everything. Adorable. Adorable. But how did she, how did a cat let her do that? Her cat is totally cool with this. Some wow. cats just like outfits. It's it's a thing. 
Uh, and finally, we had Star Wars Dr. Afra number 25. Those were our picks this week. And you may be saying, okay, why was the beginning of the show so short? It's because our big discussion this episode is about horror comics. <laughs> we wanted to do a bit of a Marvel horror comics primer, diving into some of the history of Marvel's horror and monster comics. And first things first, to do this, I need to set the stage a little bit. So picture it. Comics in the 1940s. Captain America was punching Hitler. Publishers were testing out all kinds of pulp and superhero characters, and the world was at war. I always feel like Sophia Petrillo when I, when <laughs> I, say, when I set things up like that. Anyway, <clears throat> as the decade rolled on, superheroes started to wane in popularity a bit, with true crime and horror stories and even romance comics gaining more and more popularity. There were also like funny animal books and westerns and, and things that were sort of bubbling up with superheroes taking a backseat in some cases. So Marvel, then known as Timely, started including more horror elements just across the board. Did you know that Captain America comics was changed to Captain America's Weird Tales at the end of 1949? The wild thing about this is that it lasted only two issues as this, uh, one of which did not even include Captain America. What? It's real weird. This is also the time when it was not Steve Rogers, but it was Jeff Mace. And the second Bucky had retired and there was another sidekick of his. Anyway, won't go into that. But the first of those two issues had Red Skull getting a hold of Satan's Book of Damned Souls. Cap riding across the river sticks, Cap and Skull fighting in the afterlife and so much more. And then I believe Cap like wakes up. He's like, oh, it was all a dream. And then he's <laughs> holding a piece of Red Skull's costume. And it's just like, no, <laughs> it's super gnarly. Really fun. It's a weird tale. Yeah. Some might say. Yeah. And then the cover to uh, Weird Tales number 74 is this super creepy Red Skull with long fingers and long nails. It's really neat. It's very intense. Around that same time, EC Comics, which originally stood for educational comics and then entertaining comics, they were the top when it comes to horror. They had Haunt of Fear, Vault of Horror, Crypt of Terror, which was also, I think, then became Tales from the Crypt. Obviously, everybody should know Tales from the Crypt from movies and television and, and so much more if you don't know the comics. The horror sort of menacing anthologies with these creepy narrators. They had like an old witch narrator. They had the Crypt Keeper. And this was, they were just crushing it at this point. So things were blowing up for horror and crime and creepsy comics. And then in the 1950s, Timely had then become Atlas Comics. Atlas had adventures into weird world, adventures into terror, menace, mystic, astonishing, journey into mystery, strange tales, Marvel tales, so many more. Over the course of about five years, Atlas published about 400 comics across 18 titles that were all horror or sort of horror adjacent. Yeah, what I think is it's interesting to think about what was going on in the world during this time. America was post-World War II. We had just defeated one of the world's biggest boogeymen. We saw Cap punching him in the face. It was very heroic. Everyone was super patriotic and excited. But now in the 50s and post-war, there's another fear brewing. That's the Cold War. The cultural atmosphere of suspicion, spies, and the threat of nuclear war lent itself to a ton of allegories and stories that were based on America's state of mind. And sometimes it was helpful to give these fears a name and a face, which sometimes took the form of monsters and horror stories. Yeah. Going back to our comics, we don't have a ton of these digitized. I mean, we have 
a number of them, but we put out a lot of comics even back in the 40s and then, you know, getting into the 50s. Uh, not all of them are fully available. It's hard to find them, but I've been doing a bunch of research. I have my ways around some of this stuff, and there's some really gnarly stuff in these. I really dig Menace, for example, one of our titles. It was super neat. You had Stan Lee and Bill Everett and John Romita Sr. and George Tuska and Gene Colan. Legendary name. Gene Colan did this amazing run on Tomb of Dracula. John Romita Sr., one of the most prolific and important creators in Marvel Comics history, helped really define what Spider-Man looked like after those initial first issues. Bill Everett created Submariner, and he co-created a whole bunch of other things. He worked on the first issues of Daredevil, so it's really cool. The early 50s, Menace had some really neat names attached to it, and then Stan Lee and Bill Everett introduced Zombie Simon Garth in Menace Number 5, which I think is really neat because that's a character that got brought back in the 70s for Tales of the Zombie and has been around several times since in various books. Most recently, he was in the Marvel Zombie one-shot that just came out, I think it was just last week. It's It's been the coolest thing when these characters just come out of the woodwork and have a whole new story for themselves. Heck yeah. You got a book like Adventures into Terror that was very similar. Lots of short stories of vampires and monsters and skeletons and witches with stories by creators who'd go on to do much more in the superhero space. You'd have Stan Lee, George Tuska, Gil Kane, Carmine Infantino, who is a renowned artist for DC, but has a little bit of work for us. It's cool to see Carmine's name here at Marvel or at Atlas at the time. Werner Roth and Basil Wolverton, who doesn't have a huge name, I think, in mainstream comics. But if you Google Basil Wolverton, you'll be like, I know that guy's art. It's really detailed and weird. And he became, uh, I believe, more popular in 60s underground comics. But the era of horror books would end after the 1954 publication of Seduction of the Innocent by comics' true, most horrific evil villain, Frederick Wortham. Boo! Boo! Wortham argued that comics would negatively affect kids' actions and personalities with all the excessive violence, drug use, occult scenarios, sexual themes, and much more that were prevalent in these crime comics, these these horror comics. Much of his ire was directed at EC, and admittedly, they had some very gruesome stories, but he went after pretty much anything that was crime and horror and superhero comics. He just looked at all of it and said, you're all trash. That's my Wortham impression. It's a very great 50s impression of many uptight, yeah. uptight moral savior type people. Yeah. You can read tons and tons and tons about Seduction of the Innocent and Wortham and you know everything that he was sort of trying to do. But his crusade really helped usher in the creation of the Comics Code Authority, a form of self-imposed censorship of comics content. Comics were submitted to the Comics Code Authority, and if they passed, the book was able to display the seal on their cover and thus be seen as friendly to parents and kids. I am not friendly to parents and kids, (laughs) so I would not have been able to wear the seal, but now I kind of want an ironic tattoo of it on me somewhere, which would be super fun. There's um, an organization that is friends to comic book creators and and everything, the CBLDF. Yes. um, And they're wonderful. They make pins and stuff, so they make a pin of the Comic Code Authority symbol, which I have one. I know Ron Richards has one. And it's one of those things that we wear it now for that irony. Like, it means, it reminds us of reading comics as a kid. But if you think about what it stood for, it was like, it was a censorship tool. Yeah. And so it's weird that we both have it and love it. 
but also like yeah, there's a lot to it. Yeah, like I have the T-shirt and would love to wear it because of that whole vintage nostalgia feel for a nostalgia for something that's kind of terrible and stifling. But this kind of cultural whitewashing was everywhere, including movies. And the Comics Code was partly modeled after the Hollywood Production Code of 1930, which set up similar, quote-unquote, moral guidelines for movies to follow. Throughout the 50s, comics and movies were forced to shift their themes. The last thing America wanted to do was appear morally questionable in the eyes of the world. But like most creative industries, both the movie and comic industries were full of people who knew their way around the code. Yeah, I mean, there's there's things you could do to, to mm-hmm. skirt it and, and stuff like that or they figured out okay how could we still tell interesting stories and it, it was a tough time for a lot of comics creators i mean it really hurt ec among others but anyway so horror comics kind of out of the question at that time at least the way we were doing them everybody was doing them so you had a series like marvel tales which had been running for years as this horror book this horror anthology series really cool but it made a shift from those horror stories to more adventure and sci-fi in 1955. So it didn't take long for the Comics Code Authority to, to just change things. So all the Atlas books, they shifted away from horror monsters to more sci-fi style monsters. You know, like big, cool creatures as opposed to shambling, bloodthirsty nasties. <laughs> your, your gritty street type monsters. <laughs> yeah. The ones that hide under caves. These ones came from the sky. Yeah. So we, the code meant we wouldn't have stories of zombies or murder skeletons, as I like to call some of those special <laughs> skeletons. Uh, who knows if we'd have gotten Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, and other folks creating amazing monsters such as Fin Fang Foom or Groot if the code hadn't been implemented. Because they had to shift. They had to start doing these stories if they didn't have the code, I don't know. It's, it's one of those, it would make a great what if. Oh, wouldn't it? Would it not if? <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> on, on this show and on Marvel's <laughs> Pull List, I often mention the 70s boom of Marvel horror and kung fu and other, you know, sort of cool genre stories. And that's part because the Comics Code Authority rules changed a little bit. 1971 stories featuring vampires, ghouls, and werewolves became fair game. What about murder skeletons? I, th- I think murder skeletons <laughs> were still a little tricky, a little, little tricky, but that's how we got Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, Son of Satan, Ghost Rider, Morbius Living Vampire, Frankenstein's Monster, Manphibian, Man-Thing, Satana, Blade, the Darkhold, and so much more. So what I think is also really cool and significant to think about around this time, much like the Cold War and World War II, is that as the code was changing, America was changing. This was now post-Vietnam, Watergate, the Pentagon Papers, and America's pop culture consuming public was having a very hard time trusting authority. So it's fair to say that many people even felt betrayed by it. This paved the way for people to raise their voices, express their individuality. Now that America couldn't trust authority, why conform to its rules? Authority became a new monster, and new kinds of people became the heroes who fought them. Once again, storytelling could give the nebulous authority monster a face and a name, sometimes, again, as actual monsters. Yeah. You got that, and also comics in the, the 40s, were seen as kid stuff in the 50s and stuff like that. By the 60s, they became much more popular on like college campuses. So you've got this anti-authority thing that you're talking about, plus more college kids and grown-ups are starting to get back into comics. The 70s, it's it's just like 
all kinds of stuff happening. And another thing that happened here and through the 70s at Marvel was the launch of tons of non-comics code authority branded black and white large format magazines. They didn't need to have the stamp because they weren't technically comics. They were magazines. We had kung fu stuff, swords and sorcery, humor, sci-fi, and tons more. I could talk about all those different genres and how they sprang up out of this. But of course, we had the horror magazines, Haunt of Horror, Dracula Lives, which sort of went side by side with Tomb of Dracula, and they would sort of crisscross and in the storytelling, provide more. It was really neat. Monsters Unleashed, Tales of the Zombie, Vampire Tales, which I absolutely love, and a few others. A number of these you could check out on Marvel Unlimited. And they had, like, inside, they were black and white comic stories, plus editorials, plus prose features. In Vampire Tales number one, like, the last editorial feature is the worst vampire movies ever. And it's just like, <laughs> what's happening? Uh, and these were sometimes written by Marvel Comics staffers, Marvel Comics writers. It was super fun. Uh, I, I love this stuff. That sounds like the best thing ever. Yeah. No, they're like tremendous. And yeah, they're, it was they're, like a horror zine at Marvel. Totally. Uh, and aside, for anyone curious about the whole Comics Code Authority thing, we fully got rid of the Comics Code Authority in 2001 in favor of our own rating system. And that's the end of that. Dunsies. Yeah. So from the 1970s on, horror characters and stories were just a cool thing that became part of what we did. Not to mention the growing number of horror movies that kept the monster momentum going, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Return of the Living Dead, Halloween. This only got people more and more bloodthirsty, should I say it, for reading about monsters while also watching them. Yeah. I wonder if we ever did a shark comic. Like, you know, Jaws... Ooh. You know, Jaws sort of sprang up out of that the 70s horror stuff. Yeah. Um, it's really neat. It, there's so many things that, you know, we could have played with. There was a shark girl. Yeah, she's, uh, she's one of the X-Men. Over the last few decades, we've seen uh, Ghost Rider join the Champions and the Avengers. We've seen Dracula battle the X-Men, have Storm, Wolverine, and Jubilee all get vamped up at various different times. Deadpool married a monster queen named Shikla. And they lived in the monster metropolis under Manhattan. Blade and Ghost Rider, they're giant movies. Like, people know those characters much more than some major superheroes because of, you know, the things that they've been seen on. The Darkhold and a new Ghost Rider, they've shown up on Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, with dozens of issues about Marvel zombies and so much more. It's just what was so popular became so small, so niche. And now is back to being regular and popular and important again. It's, it's really neat just how it's all come together. Yeah. I mean, look at Frank Castle. Frank Castle, the Punisher, is now the Cosmic Ghost Rider. He's also been Frankencastle. Yeah. So. And, like, he sprang up out of the 70s vigilante stuff. You know, like, real-world vigilante stuff inspired vigilante movies, inspired vigilantes in comics. It's fascinating stuff. Oh, totally is. This is not a full super-duper history for Marvel Horror, it's more of a primer. Let us know if there's something you'd like us to dig into more on a future episode. I'd love to have a reason. If someone's like, I would like you to talk about this, then, then we can. Yes. It'd be neat. And if you want new Marvel Horror, be sure you're reading Immortal Hulk by Al Ewing, Joe Bennett, and many more. And in January 2019, we get Crypt of Shadows by Al Ewing, Gary Brown, and more as part of our 80th anniversary, where we're going to see a bunch more of these genre books get released. I think there's Fighter Pilot one. I'm sure there's like going to be a Western and all these cool stories that were so important to our history are coming back. 
For sure. I can't wait to see more titles that are just receptacles of scary things, like a coffin of terror or a garbage pail of scare. I think crypt is a little bit more on the nose than a receptacle. I've seen some scary glasses cases, glasses cases of nightmares. Okay. You, You go pitch this to CB. So before I go downstairs to pitch CB my brilliant idea, we want to talk to you a little bit about Marvel's Wolverine The Long Night. We just released Marvel's Wolverine The Long Night, our first ever scripted podcast for free. You can hear it right now online or in your podcast app. It starts when a fishing boat is found off the coast of Burns, Alaska. Special agents Sally Pierce and Tad Marshall arrive to find out who or what killed the crew. And their primary suspect is a drifter named Logan. But the local police will not cooperate, and there's more going on in Burns than meets the eye. The podcast stars Richard Armitage as Wolverine. You might know him as Thorin from the Hobbit movies. With Celia Keenan-Bolger as Agent Pierce and Otto Asando as Agent Marshall. Also featuring Bob Balaban, Scott Adzit, and Chris Gethard. You have not heard anything like this before. The sound design, the acting, the writing, all of it. Super cool, really amazing. You gotta check it out. Listen to Marvel's Wolverine The Long Night for free in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and visit wolverinepodcast.com for more info. Speaking of the old knucklehead, we've got Mr. Declan Shalvey on the podcast this week. He is artist for Return of Wolverine, issues two through four. He's just this sweet, sweet Irish boy. He's done tons and tons of covers interior art, writing, all the arting. Mm-hmm. He is a swell dude. Oh, he was very fun to talk to as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, he also, I believe, worked on designs for Wolverine. You'll see him on covers for Dead Man Logan and so much more. You don't need to hear us talk more about him. Let's hear from Declan right now. How you doing, Dec? I'm Grace. I'm a- Agent here. <laughs> Good, you made it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think we've used an agent here. You you change it up every time. I so do. But you agent... cannot use agent here. That I is can't. Decorate. I can use agent there. Ooh. That's probably better, actually. <laughs> but agent yeah. here is probably way more reliable. Yeah, that's who you want there right now. Yeah. You know, not over there. Agent there is not here yeah. yet. I can't handle that. <laughs> right now, when we're recording this, you're on tour. You're signing comics meeting fans, uh, which I think is so much fun. What's the most fun part of this trip for you? Being here with you. Oh, uh, there's $100 on the table for you. I can't believe you fell for guy. that one. Um, this is going to sound bad, but seeing some of your fine country is nice. Some of it's great. Well, like, I've been I've been to America loads, but, you know, it's generally in the context of conventions, and you don't get to see too much of it. I, I was at a fan expo in Boston last weekend, and I went for dinner with Matt Rosenberg and Nick Spencer and Donnie Cates, dropping names but um, look at you yeah but it was nick spencer because he was like oh let's go to a nice restaurant i was like huh <laughs> you know it's a convention you eat crap here you know and it was really nice to actually go to an area in boston and it was this was felt like the most touristy thing i had done in a while and then i uh, went, went to washington dc and i took a half day to see the lincoln memorial and vietnam memorial and stuff and it's you know the way some americans might think of ireland is like you know, they think it's like Disney World, which, you know, it is in some ways when you go there, because it, it, it looks like the things you, you'd imagine coming over here. All these things are like iconographic, but that's the same as like New York fire hydrants were for me when I was a kid or the first time I saw fire escapes here in New York. It's like, oh, fire escapes, because to me, that was just part of like the stuff I read and it's growing up. 
you know, you guys live in, in, in New yeah. York. They're just like, yeah, we need to have them or we might die. I, I literally, at my house, we park our car behind our house. And so we got a note on our car from the fire department saying, you have to move up further because the ladder for the fire escape okay, has yeah. to come down. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to go back a little bit and, and look at your Marvel origin story. How did you get introduced to Marvel? How did you like get connected to these characters in this world? I... Imagine similar to you, but I'm a child of the 90s and um, there was the X-Men cartoon, the Spider-Man cartoon were the big thing for me because I'm from the west of Ireland and like there weren't any comic stores. So I'd heard of the characters, but I didn't see the comics. But once the cartoons were there, I actually had access and I learned about them and I made a conscious effort to go out and try find them. There was an old lady who had a newsagent in my local town and she managed to order in X-Men. The, the title of Jim Lee started, but it was like the issues in his 30s by then. So the first issue was like a Scott and Jean one-shot issue, which I knew those characters. So I'm like, oh, cool, X-Men. And then the next issue was Phalanx Covenant Part 2 <laughs> with Emma Frost, Jubilee, Banshee, and Sabretooth. I remember thinking, where's Wolverine? <laughs> it's like, I was so confused. Also, what happened to Part 1? Because it was the next issue of nope. X-Men. I, w- I didn't understand what crossovers were. Then the next issue was Part 4. I'm like, what happened to Part 3? I, I find it really interesting that as creators and, and editors who were always trying to like get more people to read comics, they were so hard to get into back then. But there was nothing else quite like them, you know? And, and especially not like being from Ireland, like American, that paper, the drawings, that even the ads were so alien. It was just so cool. I just tried, you know, finding wherever I where I could. Another funny thing is, I don't know if you remember, but a few issues later, Legion kills Professor Xavier. Spoilers. And then the uh, Age of Apocalypse happens. You're on a roller coaster ride. I really right am. from the get-go. Yeah, because you're like, what the hell's going on? But that lady, the news agents, was only ordering X-Men. <laughs> the book became Astonishing X-Men. Yeah. So months, months went by and there was no X-Men. And I was like... Oh my god, they've stopped making X-Men comics. <laughs> I thought they'd just stopped and killed Xavier and there's nope, that's it, no more X-Men. So I was sure they just stopped making publishing X-Men comics. <laughs> Meanwhile, there was like this massive event happening, you know. But it shows how I was so desperate for that material. A really cool thing that happened was in Europe, Panini started republishing older stories. So while I was reading the end of the Clone Saga in Spider-Man, I was starting to read the beginning of it in the, <laughs> the republished stuff. And over over time, they slowly caught up with each other. So it felt like I was getting to like watching it show at two different times, you know. But those were actually great, those reprints. You find it like you find in the UK and in Europe, there's massive people got into it due to like cheaper reprints that we because they wouldn't have gotten American comics. But um, I was just hooked on that stuff, man. I, weirdly, people in my generation are more into like things like 2000 AD culturally. But that stuff was too like... That was too bloody and violent for me. I loved superheroes. Weirdly now, I love all that stuff, but uh, I just like my clean, simple, heroic superhero stories. Yeah, like Wolverine, the guy with three claws that just rips into people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How'd you end up getting to work for Marvel? Like, What was, uh, what was that like? I, I fell upwards. I uh, Story of my life. I was at a Heroes Con. You know, if you've ever been, it's a really great show. But, um, uh, North Car- Charlotte, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I met uh, Jeff Parker, who... I was drawing a 28 Days Later comic at the time. So I've been doing American work. And Jeff Parker said he liked my stuff. What year um, is this? This is 2010. Okay. And uh, Jeff was writing uh, Hulk and Thunderbolts at the time. He said he really liked my work and he asked if it, could he send it to Marvel. And I went pure Irish and I immediately apologized. <laughs> and I said, I, I said, no, no, no. I couldn't ask you to do that. That would be terribly rude of me. And he... 
was confused and said, "No, no, that's not it's not rude at all. I I'm I'm offering to you." And I again I was like, "Ah, no, no, no. I couldn't put you out. That'd be t- oh, I'd be awful inconvenience. No, 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 no. I'm I'm terribly sorry." And there had a Canadian um friend, uh, Tom Fowler. He he was next to me. He just said, and then Shh. started apologizing for you. No, 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 because he was. I think he was in a happy medium between the Irish and the American. He just went, "Shut up. Just say yes." Thank you very much. I was like, all right. Uh, yes, please. Thanks very much. Yeah, Jeff sent my stuff to, uh, it was uh, Bill Roseman who was the editor on Thunderbolts at the time. And um, they needed a two-issue fill-in. It was like an anniversary issue that Kev Walker was the artist on the book at the time. And it was a double-sized issue. So they needed somebody to fill in for two issues after that. And it was this Shadowland uh, crossover in which it was a crossover with Daredevil. And I didn't even get to draw oh. Daredevil. Again, that was my first first Marvel game. Yeah, did No. So I did the two issues. I think that was pretty much my test. And Marvel kept hiring me after that. Oh, <laughs> the losers. I can't <laughs> wait until like the moment you're actually asked to do Daredevil and the first thing you do is just apologize profusely <laughs> for being asked. You know, well, I'll get to channel all the um, Irish Catholicism, guilty, all of the horrible feelings that come with the being raised Catholic, you oh, know. I yeah. mean, I... It's going to be a mess. <laughs> oh, this has to happen Yeah, he'll just be crying for 12 issues. <laughs> oh, just 12 issues yeah. of tears. Yeah. The, the comics themselves will be just soaked in tears. Yeah, going to mass, you know. Yeah, no, it'll, yeah, it'll, be, it'll be very grim. Maybe I should never do that character. <laughs> no, I think you have to do this character now. Uh, no, that's, that's actually... Uh, Wolverine definitely was like bucket list. Um, Punisher, I would say... Daredevil, definitely. And like an X-Men book. You know, those are things I've always wanted to do at Marvel. So it's cool that with the Return of Wolverine, I'm actually, I'm actually, like I never thought I'd get to do an event book. And Declan, you are now on board on this title. It's very exciting. But what was the first time you drew Wolverine for Marvel? Technically, the first time I drew Wolverine for Marvel was... I did a short story for Fear Itself. I was uh, drawing Thunderbolts at the time. It was a juggernaut short story for an anthology, I believe. And uh, it just showed some of his history. And as a huge X-Men fan, basically, any attempt to get X-Men into Thunderbolts, I did. There was very little opportunity. But <laughs> but because of that backstory, uh, you know, I had like a Juggernaut and Sidorak with Professor Xavier. But there was a shot of the X-Men and I got to draw, I think it was like 30. Basically, the script said, you know, do whatever you like. And uh, front and foremost was Wolverine in the Frank Quietly X costume and... Yeah, that was that was amazing. Do uh, you know the writer Matt Rosenberg? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Matt tells a story. He got to do an X Men story early on, and it was a, a short one. I think it was might have been Secret Wars story. And he was like, "Well, they'll probably never let me write again, so I'm just going to write every X Men into yeah. it." And it was the same thing. I love that. Like, you know, you, yeah. you guys are these wonderfully talented artists of varying, you know, disciplines, and then you're like. But uh, I got to yeah. I got to do it all was, right now. I, I, was ta- I was talking to uh, somebody at lunch there, and it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's kind of like the um, instincts of a storyteller and the instincts of, you know, a fan who gets to draw this stuff. So you you want to draw the stuff you loved as a kid, but these things move and develop and change and and evolve. So you're fighting this kind of like adolescent urge all the time in ser- in service of a better story, admittedly. But there's always that like element of frustration, you know. And you did the sequence with I think it was Matt Wilson on colors, Jason Latour writing. The, there was that. The death of Wolverine aftermath issue in uh, Wolverine and the X Men. It was a couple years ago. Oh yeah, and yeah. I I specifically remember it because there's one of the panels. It's like the second or the third page of Weapon X, and it just mm. was so cool to me. Like the like you captured the fury 
of that story so well. How does it feel now to be part of bringing back the old knucklehead? That's funny. I'd forgotten about that. Notice how big that was on the page. <laughs> it was a good third yeah. of the page. It was a good third of the page. But I mean, like, but I would say from like having written as well, the thing is to know what are the good big visual moments. And everybody loves that Weapon X storyline. So if you're going to have it in there, don't put it in a tiny panel. Let everybody enjoy that again and like relive it. Uh, yeah, I, I'd, I'd totally forgotten about that. It, it's it's weird. I mean, I'm a huge Logan Wolverine fan. It's strange to be doing a big book like this. Something like that, that short story that was like an epilogue to a big event. You know, that was the epilogue, not the big event. And I'm normally used to kind of doing more on, I wouldn't say small books, but under the radar ones like Moon Knight or, you know, I know Deadpool is very successful, but this is before the the movie was out. You know, I had a niche audience. Yeah. So I'm kind of used to doing superhero stuff, but peculiar superhero stuff. This is a big Wolverine event. This is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, speaking of peculiar, I saw a panel from the story within the Venomverse that you wrote and drew, yeah. and you had a panel that will that is forever beautifully seared into my brain of Frank Castle vomiting the symbiote all over Wilson Fisk. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I loved it so much. Cool. It made me really happy, And but you wrote and drew this. Yeah, so I yeah. wanted to ask you, do those two things ever conflict with each other? Do they work with each other? What is it writing and drawing mm-hmm. a story? It's it's interesting. I the first time I actually did it was for um choosing sides. Will Moss asked if I would do this Fury storyline that uh went through the whole anthology. And that's the first story I actually wrote and drew. The cool thing about drawing comics is taking a script and making it into images. It's a like a very unique puzzle and it's really challenging and it's what that's the cool thing about about doing comics. And what I was worried about when I was writing them was that I was going to lose that but what I found out was writing it is where you're kind of forming the puzzle and you you fix it in the script before it gets to, to drawing. So by the time I got drawing, it just flowed straight, you know, and I had that idea of, you know, him vomiting this and being on, 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 like that was in my head. So, you know, I didn't need to ponder about it. It was a very direct image, put it down and make it all make it all work. I, I'd like to do it more, definitely. I'd like to write and draw something at some stage. I don't have anything planned for a while. It is a unique experience because you feel it just kind of challenges more directly onto the page. So it sounds like a ridiculously pretentious answer, but hey. <laughs> you make it sound so good, though. That's just oh, the it's accent. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I literally liked seeing Frank Castle possessed by the symbiote because those are two of my favorite crazy, savage, visceral characters. Well, the one one guy is the ultimate wielder of weapons and the other is a weapon. Like, so what I really liked about Rick's Venom run as well was basically you had someone who's an alcoholic and was disabled and giving him a tool where the longer you're joined with it, the, the worse you get and you need it to walk. The dependency is issue was what was unique about that and that's why I liked the Punisher Venom story was that one uses weapons, the other one is the ultimate weapon and he uses it to get what he wants. You yeah. know, or both of them did. Uh, I want to go back to Wolverine a little bit. You mentioned you to return to Wolverine? I have failed. This is why this you is, have me here. That's right. <laughs> uh, now we return to Wolverine. Where does Wolverine rank in your pantheon of X-Men? Number one. Mm. I'm the generation that had the X-Men cartoon. Cyclops is... A friend, a friend of mine describes him. He's like like the Apollo in Battlestar Galactica, the, the straight guy, you know. And nobody wants to be the straight guy, but you need him, you know. And that's what I like about Cyclops. I love Rogue. I love There's so many of them I love, but Logan's always been the number one. I guess it's just every adolescent boy just wants to be Logan to some degree, you know. They want to be short and hairy. 
I'm not sure that actually works. Maybe <laughs> some, I take that back. Some, yeah. some guys are some short guys and are hairy. Short and, hairy. and they yeah. can just be Wolverine. Yeah, cat cat meow. Like. <laughs> I'm a kitty cat Wolverine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, his first costume did have whiskers. That's so true. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Deck, when you've drawn Wolverine in, in, mm-hmm. in a couple different ways before, but when you're doing this book, which is a pivotal point in Logan's tenure in comics, what do you want to see? What do you want to bring to the page? What's essential Wolverine to you? I think, uh, you know, gruff, angry, sour, doesn't want to be there, doesn't like you. He's a grumpy guy. You know, he's he, a lovable he grump. We all, you know, all like that. It's different regards to the story that we're telling in this because um, we, we will know Logan better than he knows himself in the story, essentially. But, you know, he's still the same person. Uh, for me, he's just he's got to be a squat Canadian. It's one thing that kind of like bothers me about a lot of people who end up drawing Wolverine. They make him super lean and svelte and muscular and beautiful. And there's all there's loads of beautiful men in comics. We need some uggos, you know? But that was always the cool thing about Wolverine. He was always, like, he was always odd. He stood out. He was short. He was hairy. He's like a barrel. That's what I like. But that's what I like drawing about him specifically because you can end up drawing, like, a very similar body type for a lot of, like, male superheroes. But yeah, a name like Cyclops or um, Iron Man, all of them, they're all fairly, you know, similar. Unless you're going to Juggernaut, which is another crazy extreme. But that's the cool thing about drawing uh, Wolverine is I give him that kind of Neanderthal brow, tough nose, squinty eyes, kind of like a hunch over and uh those claws pop and he's a, cool. it looks dangerous yeah he should stand out in a in a way that's not calling attention to himself in fact in a weird way he's kind of an every guy that's what i think what everybody really likes about him he drinks a beer or tells people to get lost i think that's why we all like him you know mm. he's the little yeah, yeah he's my height i read he's mm. five four well, you know, you often hear of, like, people complaining that there aren't enough, like, different types of women's body sizes, which is a ter- totally valid complaint. I think, the, I, I actually think the reason that it tends to happen is when you're drawing lots of characters, especially, like, a team book, you're drawing a body so much, you just kind of go back to a to a standard one. Hmm. And it actually takes more efforts to go, oh, wait, they might be shorter, or they might be heavier, or they might be, have fat ankles or something, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it takes more mental effort to remember all that stuff. So when you've got an artist who's like trying to get a monthly book done with lots of characters, especially all the older comics when those guys were on crazy deadlines. Now you've got artists who are way more conscious of this stuff and they have more time to develop it. So I'm standing up for the body diversity of burly Canadian, hairy, <laughs> short. Um. So I wanted to talk about the return of Wolverine. One of my favorite things that Ryan talks about is the acting of characters in these books. And obviously, Logan is going to be going through something kind of big during this return. Can you speak to his expressions and what you're putting him through as an artist? Without getting into anything story-wise, he's going through something that'll be different from before. So he's not going to be exactly what we know. Because he's on a journey, essentially, you know. I'd say we'll put it this way: I know who Wolverine is, but I don't think he necessarily knows who he is right at the moment in the story. So for me, it's trying to draw a character who we all know, we know what he can do, we know what he's capable of, but the audience knows a little bit more than the character in this regard, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, because I feel like he's not going to be—he's not going to have a whole lot of words during this. I feel like he's going to be really pensive and it's going to be mostly what are we seeing on his face? No, you know you're right and, and they're, they're, for me it's it's that balance of of trying to work with what's before, what's coming. That stuff actually kind of comes more naturally to me, which some people do have an affinity for for something. Some people are just naturally better at action, some people are naturally better at like uh, monsters or drawing beautiful women and stuff. you know everybody has a thing they're better at and I think I'm quite fortunate that something I'm just having to be good at is is facial expressions. 
I loved Mike Henderson when you were working with Mike yes. and like he's there's just so many things he does and I was just like whoa like some of his his delicate line work mm. and in telling some of those action scenes uh, was so much fun I, I'm a big fan of Mike's stuff I loved working with him on um, Deadpool versus Old Man Logan because Mike he's not the same he's similar with similar sensibilities we'll put that way like if the it was cool when I'd see the layouts come together and it would be that's what was in my head you know exactly but then there'll be other moments where it'll be something different I'm like oh that's cool I wouldn't have I wouldn't have done that um, yeah because that story was meant to be emotional and big action bombastic you know a big moments small moments what he's doing on Dead Man Logan now though is it looks fantastic I feel I feel so guilty because everyone's seen the cover but no one's seen pages yet I'm like <laughs> people are not, are not going to care about the cover once they see the interior pages yeah so in addition to making Wolverine look a little bit more grounded and short and like the gruff Canadian we know mm. and love what else are you bringing to this new run that's that we're not going to we haven't seen before going to make him blonde uh, no. <laughs> that is a brand new uh, take yeah isn't it um, yeah. well no well, it's, it's kind of weird because I've drawn a lot of uh, old man Logan when I drew him his hair is like similar to mine say it's longer a little scruffier it's actually kind of fun to draw the, the hair curl again but um, I actually got to design a costume for him in this, in this arc I think it shows up at the end of issue one so the first thing I did when I when, when I took on the gig was design a, a new costume for Logan it's not a Wolverine costume I should state it's not designed for Wolverine it's basically uh Something he finds. I had all these different versions that were way more Wolverine-y, but sometimes, you know, the inner adolescent guy wants to do the thing that they know, so you want to just make draw the, the costume that you know and shoehorn it in. As somebody who actually does this professionally, you have to serve the story first. So I tried to kind of make it iconic. You always want a, con- a costume to be iconic, but I, I made it in a way that is somewhat reminiscent of a previous Wolverine costume, not one of the more well-known ones, but again, make it something that isn't Wolverine-like. It's a kind of a weird balance to, to find, but I think... I think I got it. Nice. Um, what is the process like for you in terms of, because you do a lot of covers. You know, I like, do, yeah. You're doing covers versus like getting into interiors. Can you just sort of knock out a cover, you know, quickly? Sometimes you just have a great idea and you're like, this is just the best one. And you hand it into the editor and they're like, cool, go with it. Uh, sometimes you hand in a couple and they pick the one you don't want. It depends each time. But I would say what I love about working at Marvel is I generally get to do the images that I think are the best ones. Or if somebody picked one that I didn't like and I I made an argument for the one I thought was better, I might win that argument. Or I might not, which is fine, but I always feel that like there's good back and forth. Even on the um, Punisher covers I did uh, a couple of years ago, which I got a lot of compliments on, I actually had a back and forth with the editors on that and they suggested some ideas and normally be like, Ugh, you know, trying to shoehorn in ideas, but they were really good, and they actually did make the covers covers better. So, I like being the cover artist on a book. Like the variants are fun, but Dead Man Logan is I'm really enjoying because I love that I'll have that book will have a visual identity that I'm helping establish. Mm-hmm. Same as when I was doing Punisher. Other like variant covers are different because you don't tend to. There's no ownership on the book in regards, so it's more of doing a quick little solo, you know, which can be lots of fun. Yeah. Um, but I really loved your Punisher covers because you work the skull into aspects of each cover, mm-hmm. which I thought was really cool. And some of them were very much there, and some of them you you like you you step back and you go, oh, like we had yeah. those moments. Looking, I at mean, the I covers. have to, I have to. It depends on the editor, you know. I've had bad experiences and brilliant experiences, and it depends who who it is. My better ones are the ones where they just kind of let you do what you want. But of course, that's exactly what a freelancer wants. <laughs> um, the nice thing with the Punisher ones was they were very open to my ideas, and like there's what the third. I don't know if you remember the third one. 
he's underneath a van and he's uh, pointing a gun at you. But the thing is, it's actually turned on its side. Because <laughs> I knew on the van, if you to effectively draw a van, you need more length. But the problem with the comic is that it's vertical. But what it is, I, I switched the vertical and I remember handing that in going, they're never going to prove that. But I, but it was the best idea I had. I knew it would catch your eye, mm. and I try I tried to be very like graphically minded when designing covers, and then bump that up with like a level of illustration that's worth the pay, the page rate uh, that they give me. So for Punisher, it's like what's going to grab your attention. I knew that cover would because no other cover is going to be on its side. Yeah. That's something that you would no- I would normally get total pushback to, but they went for it. I think um, the compromise was to show some blood at the bottom or something, so it leads to the eye a little. I'm like, yeah, that's, that, that, that's actually it's a good note. Yeah, fair enough. That's when I realized, I think I can go pretty nuts with this, you know. I can try some stuff here, and if there's some pushback, it's fine. I don't even mind a little bit of pushback on some jobs because I do a lot of creator-owned stuff, and you can do anything you want there. So I find sometimes like limitations mm-hmm. can actually force you to come up with more creative ideas. When you can do whatever you want, you can... It's actually kind of easy to get complacent sometimes. The second one was the diner one. I remember that yeah. one. And uh, so I had that whole idea. And they had the idea of, because um, I said diner, they said, what if the lights don't work for two of the letters and it's D-I-E? I'm like, that's a really good idea, you know, because um, I work I work a lot with the, like Jordi Belair and Warren Ellis. And these are people who have great ideas, mm-hmm. be it like color or story or whatever it is. I'd say the last one, I think they asked if we could show Frank, but I do think it stands out in a weird way. You know, I still got to do the skull. I don't know if you noticed the skull is like basically wallpaper pattern. Mm. So it's more subtle because you do see him. I had little skull cufflinks. The idea was to show him young and cool because it was a younger Punisher basically was the, was what they, were, what they were doing. But so I remember drawing just shots of him with a gun, which is exactly what you'd expect in a Punisher cover. And uh, I was talking to, to Jordy at the time and she's like, why don't you just do something more iconic? Like you love doing that stuff. And I think she just mocked up like a skull with a red line on it or something. I'm like, So she helped me a lot with that first one. Mm. Punisher's scarier when you don't see him. Mm. One of those characters where the less they're seen, the scarier they are. So I was like, how do I not show him on the cover every issue? So that was like, well, and, and I love iconography. Um, when I did Winter Soldier. I used the, the Red Star a lot. I'm trying to think what I've done it other times, but well, I've, done, I, I've done it loads. Sorry. I'm, no, no. I, I just like you use the phrase visual identity. And, mm. and how you want to be the person who gives a visual identity to a book. And I think that's what you did with Punisher. That's what you're doing with these That was books, the goal, yeah. Which is really, it, it's, a, it's really great. Oh, thanks. Well, similarly as well for Dead Man Logan, you know, I kind of want a Western feel to that. So I've decided to color these covers, or I asked Marvel if I could, because that's something I haven't done before. So I'll have something I'll have a bit more control over. And I, I want to do it three colors, white, brown, and red. So... That's a limit. I've made a limitation for myself mm. now. And also the cover design, it's half, basically half black because the title design is going to go vertical, not uh, horizontal. Now, basically, instead of like the normal shape that you have for like, say, a tablet or a comic, I don't have that much space. It's more vertical than it is horizontal. And I can only use three colors. So now the question is, so what's what's happening in the issue and how can I make a strong image keeping within those rules you know it's like making your own rules like i did with the the punisher covers yeah one of the covers that i remember specifically is the one with the um the crocheting or the knitting that was a tough one yeah yeah Yeah, i i I love it though because when you think of the punisher you don't think about something soft and cozy and comfy 
but it's being formed into a skull. <laughs> yeah, so that was cool. a, I have to. I know I, I didn't help the color story but there on that because uh, she did more of the rendering and all those bits of wool. I didn't. Uh, I just drew them. But I drew, I drew the crap out of the old wrinkly hands <laughs> yeah. um, uh, to, to compensate. But uh, my rule was don't show Punisher, show the skull. That's not editorial going, you can't do this. That's for me, I'm trying to create rules that I don't break. Now, then again, sometimes you might break them, but you'll have to, it has to be really, 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 really worth it, you know. So that way I can call myself a rule breaker. <laughs> uh, well, bad boy Declan Shelby, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you breaking all the rules and talking about comics with us for a while. You're the best. Oh, thanks, man. All right, big thanks again to Declan Shalvey for coming here and chatting with us. Definitely check out his Return to Wolverine art, which is available right now. First issue of his part of the series, which is issue number two, is available. We talk about it on Marvel's pull list this week. Uh, And our question of the week is, what is your favorite Wolverine costume? Do you have a a favorite? I know you you read a bunch of those stories when we were doing the Wolverine stuff. Yeah. You know, I like a man's tank top and jeans. It's a good look for Wolverine. He's got them furry arms. It's great. It he works. He does. Yeah. He does. But, you know, it's a sign of masculinity. Exactly. It's good. I think I would go with the, like, the tan and brown costume. Depending on who you talk to, it's, like, golden tan, tan and brown, like, mud and sunlight costume. Like, people have different ways of describing it. But I just love that costume. It, you know, the, the blue and the yellow is incredible. But I think that the brown and tan it's just what hits it for me. But this new look that we see him in Return to Wolverine is tremendous as well. So we need to know what your favorite Wolverine costume is. You can tweet your answers using hashtag This Week in Marvel. And if you use hashtag TWIM, we'll try to remember to grab those as well. You can email them to twimpodcast at marvel.com or send a message to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash This Week in Marvel. With that, let's hear from you guys. Uh, a couple of tweets coming in on the community section. Robert at Captain Rogers 44 says, definitely giving my pick of the week to Life of Captain Marvel number four by Margie Stoll. That was one powerful issue. The truth about Carol and her mother and how different things truly were all these years. Hashtag these powers are yours. Hashtag Carol Core. Hashtag higher, further, faster. Ooh. Chills. Simon Williams says, after reading Shuri number one and Unstoppable Wasp number one, I now want to see a team up between them, Ironheart and Moon Girl. Oh, so very, so very, yes. That's a fearsome foursome plus Devil Dinosaur. That would be tremendous. Mm, Very good. Love it. Simon also says his twim of the week for October 17th was Thor number six. This book is hardcore. And Paul Dewey writes, worst potential superpower, the bellkeeper. He knows the exact number of bells that are ringing in any given moment. Yeah, that's a not that's a not good one. But like, I need to know, what is the scope of this power? Is it like bells within a 100 meter radius? Is it like just the bells of like giant bell? Like, I like, need to know more. Is it like your little tiny like dingy bells, like little jingle bells and church bells? Like, yeah. can he bounce sonar off of the bells and pinpoint a location is that is that what is the benefit and like how much does he understand like if it's holiday time and there are bells everywhere worst time of the year for and him if, if he's like in a shopping center where the the stores have the bells on the doors and everybody's going in and out how does that affect him is he just going mad i don't know unless he loves it weirdly paul you say this is a worst potential superpower but i think there's story possibility there 
Last community post here is from Dan Everett saying, listening to TWIM episode 363, the spider Geddon spectacular. Oh boy, Agent M, I loved Spider-Verse and it was so good. I'm a graphic novel kind of guy, so I can't wait to read this next year. The hype is real. Dan, it's my duty to get you to read this <laughs> right now. <laughs> what are you doing? Dan, what are you even doing with your life? But you know what? I'm very happy that you are going to read it when it comes out in a collected edition. Whatever. You win this round, Dan. Hope you enjoy Spider Garden when you, it comes out. If that starts hurting your voice, I can also do that. Feel free. Spider Garden. Oh, yeah. That was, that was good. Yeah. That's creepsy. No big deal. On that note, <laughs> that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Uh, just a little fun note. We're going to have a bonus, a little Halloween Whoa! episode with Mr. Al Ewing talking about Immortal Hulk and some horror comic stuff. We'll give a little bit of a background of horror comics in relation to the Hulk, and it should be super fun. Check that out. Halloween week. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jamie. This is Marvel. Your universe. Your universe.